Welcome to the ENA Podcast. This is the ENA Podcast, and this is Dan Campana, the Director of Communications with the Emergency Nurses Association, welcoming you to our latest episode. Today, we're going to focus on challenges with obstetrics in the ED and a little bit of the work being done to help nurses overcome those challenges. And why that's important is, uh, I'll throw a stat out here just to get us started, but nationally, pregnancy-related conditions are the sixth most common reason for admission to the ED and the fourth most common final diagnosis from the ED for women of childbearing age, according to research. And in areas where obstetric services are not available, emergency departments often become the default for unplanned obstetric care, yet ED nurses are not universally trained in the identification and treatment of obstetric emergencies. So in a nutshell, that's why we're here and who we're going to talk about this with are uh, a couple of uh, folks that uh, one you're very familiar with, that's the ENA Director of Emergency Nursing Research, Lisa Wolf, and a new friend uh, joining us on the podcast for the first time, Debbie Dietz, who uh, spent nearly uh, 30 years in, uh, in OB and in recent years has come to join uh, the side on the ED, in the, on the ED side. Uh, and bring a little bit of that expertise into it. So uh, Lisa and Debbie, welcome to the ENA podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. So Lisa, you know, let's start with you and, and really just talk about some of uh, those key ED challenges that when it comes to obstetrics, and I, I'm sure it covers a wide swath of things from uh, nurses just not feeling familiar and comfortable with uh, obstetric cases, all the way up to maybe just the lack of education as was noted in the, the note I started with. Uh, so talk a little bit about what are the most common challenges uh, when it comes to obstetric care in the ED. Right, so I think I'm gonna start with the idea that obstetrics is not a niche population at all in the emergency department. It's, it's like half of your population is pregnancy capable, right? So um, given that and given that pregnancy complications are really a, actually very common presentation in the emergency department, uh, you know, uh, vaginal bleeding, uh, nausea, hyperemesis, you know, all these things show up pretty routinely in the emergency department. I think where um, we run into trouble, though, is where um, in most nursing curricula right now, the, uh, the opportunity to get good clinical experience in obstetrics is very, very limited. And so it's kind of pushed to the side as this special population, right? Maybe two weeks in the summer kind of thing. Um, so nurses come out of nursing school without a good grounding in obstetrics to start with. Um, so, and of course they bring that lack of knowledge into their work in the emergency department. And the culture of the emergency department is basically 20 weeks, get them out of here, right? So if somebody comes in and they disclose that they're you know, 20 weeks pregnant or more, we tend to send them upstairs to obstetrics. The problem is that there are uh, fewer and fewer obstetric units for us to do that too, right? Um, so we, we have done um, the initial study, uh, which was published in 2019 about um, emergency nurses' uh, knowledge deficits in their, and how that impacts their ability to triage patients having obstetric emergencies, right? So if you don't even ask the question, if you don't see the question as relevant, um, then you miss a lot of opportunities to intervene early, right? And appropriately triage people. So from that, um, we developed an educational module, which um, Dr. Dietz is gonna talk a little bit about um, the use of, but 
Um, I think more importantly, that work has gotten us engaged with other um, associations, right? So we work with ACOG, we work with AWAN, um, recognizing that those folks have a compelling interest in emergency nurses being well-trained in the recognition and care of obstetric emergencies. So I just actually, I was at the AIM meeting yesterday, the, it's um, uh, Innovation in Improving Maternal Health. Right. So, you know, I spent all day yesterday listening to maternal mortality statistics and um, and it's pretty depressing. Two thirds of those maternal deaths are preventable. Uh, Debbie, talk a little bit about your background. You mentioned uh, to me before we started uh, your number of years that you worked in OB and, and now moving over into the ED. Uh, just share a little bit of that background and, and really what you started to observe with that OB brain, if you will, uh, you know, over the last couple of years and identifying the challenges that um, your peers who don't have that OB background might be facing and how you've helped support that? Well, I, I've uh, been very fortunate that I've been at the same facility for 31 years. So um, I have over 28 and a half years in OB. And in that I served, I was various roles, um, a large, uh, well, a portion of it was in education. And then I've been in the emergency room for now two years. So I can see both sides of it. So I do recall the problems that we had um, when I was working in OB with the nurses in the ER not recognizing when a patient's condition was deteriorating or not recognizing that hypertension and pregnancy was um, critical to the patient and not collaborating with OB. And then in turn going on to the other side of it um, and then only getting education when I was on orientation in the emergency room with OB complications because we had modules and classroom time to do that, but it wasn't sustainable. So we didn't have further um, annual education. So um, fortunately, I was in school and my DNP project was focused on OB complications and emergency room nurses. And very, very fortunate to be able to collaborate with Lisa and use the module that she developed for the ENA for. Um, specifically designed for emergency room nurses. And it, it really was very valuable. So in my project, the nurses were all assigned her health stream module and she did a voiceover for us, which um, I think when you hear something and then you read something, you really can absorb it better. And then a month later during ER competencies, I got to lead the the OB station, of course, they were all like, you take it, you take it. <laughs> um, and I put the nurses through a precip delivery, which they all loved. Most of them had never delivered a baby and they were all very, you know, I, I had to like pick someone to, to do it. But in the process of that, I had the patients, because we, we have a birthing simulator, had the patient's blood pressure was elevated and they had to recognize, you know, well, the blood pressure is elevated. So she delivered the baby. I've got great pictures of it. And then um, the simulator says, I don't feel good. And then goes into a seizure and they all had to work together as a team with, a, you know, some prompting and stuff. But most of, most of them all took over everybody, they're ER nurses. So they're used to trauma, they're used to quick action. They all work together so well as a team to try to stabilize the patient. And from that education over the past year, because it's been almost a year that we did that, I've had several nurses come up to me and say, because of that education, my, my patient had high blood pressure. And, and you know I told the doctor this could be preeclampsia or, and so I, I really strongly believe that 
OB education specifically designed for ER nurses is just critical. It's very, very important. And good collaboration with OB if you have an OB service, because the hospital that I work for does have some standalone facilities. So as an educator in OB, we would go down to the standalone facility and then do precip deliveries and talk about all those complications. And we did that twice a year, but that wasn't in like our main ER. So um, I, th I think that's a problem with uh, future education because as I'm gonna transition into a nurse practitioner role, I'm leaving the ER. So who's gonna take over the education for me when you know I leave? Because they really kind of threw it in my hands last year with complete support of their leadership team. And it really worked out well. Lisa, yeah. I think that, that goes a little bit to the illustration of the consistency of the education mm -hmm. opportunity, because not every ED has a Debbie Dietz there that can help, you know, um, you know, lead that because of their experience. So um, that's the education part, but also the obstetric desert, which is something that uh, your your team and ENA was involved with identifying and then finding the right mechanisms to get education to those areas. Talk a little bit about that aspect of it, which is getting the education in the hands of the people that need it, but also knowing where it's needed. Well, fortunately, the March of Dimes has done that work for us and produced a map of obstetric deserts. And it's pretty much the whole middle of the country, like except for the coast, um, the, the vast majority of the United States is an obstetric desert. Um, and so uh, we, because of the work that we had been doing uh, with our research, um, uh, and, and we've been doing some work with, uh, with ACOG, with the AIM project. And we we're like, well, I think if we could get education to emergency nurses, right? Like this would be really, really helpful. So we partnered with AWAN to deliver their um, critical care uh, OB uh, for free to nurses who, who were in these obstetric deserts. And so now I think we currently have a, a hundred nurses registered um, to, to avail themselves of this education. Now, what's really hard is that, and part of the reason that the, the module that Debbie used is like, I don't know, 45 minutes or something. Like it's, it's quick, it's totally like down and dirty. Um, the thing is that nurses are required. There's so much regulatory, mandatory education, right? That I think um, that it can be really difficult to sort of impose one more thing on people, even though it's, it's really, really important, obviously for clinical practice. Um, I think that what we found in our research study was that obstetric education was reactive and incident-based, right? So in other words, something bad happens, so we're gonna educate people about like this one thing. Um, and so education becomes event or person-driven, right? So you've got somebody like Debbie in your ED who's got this vast experience in obstetrics, um, sees the need, and then, you know, steps in to do stuff. But, um, but, but until this education is seen as foundational to emergency nursing practice, then it becomes very sporadic. It becomes really inconsistent. And I think moving toward an idea where, you know, you know, every person of, of pregnancy, of childbearing age is, is a potential um, obstetric patient, right? Like every patient's a behavioral health patient, you know? So, so to stop separating those considerations out as some kind of unusual occurrence when it's, it's not, not at all. 
Debbie, from your perspective, having been on both sides now uh, from OB and ED, um, is it, did you, have you seen that the same way where it's a sort of a cultural, if you will, um, exercise where it, they're not being thought of, they're be, not being compartmentalized in the way that Lisa talked about, especially from a triage perspective that how did you try to help account for that, especially when you were on the OB side to say, Hey, did we contemplate this or why didn't we contemplate this? Yeah, I think, um, what I've seen is, um, a transition in our, um, triage, um, intake, um, asked. Uh, specific pregnancy questions, you know, or, you know, about um, if they're pregnant or if they're unknown. And, you know, it says, let the doctor know what I do still see that we need to do is identify that patient that has just delivered in the last six weeks or so, because that question isn't included in our triage. And I don't know if Lisa's found that with other triage documents that she has um, encountered and, and reviewed with, but um, getting them to think like, I know Lisa had already mentioned we do have two time frames that we're talking about less than 20 weeks we see in the er greater than 20 weeks we send them to ob i'm very fortunate to work at a, a, a hospital that has an ob but what about those hospitals that don't have the ob so it's important for them to collaborate with whomever they transport to to get that education for their facility or standardized um, way to, to stabilize the patient so, um, but I do, we do see patients that are um, over 20 weeks that come in with chest pain, shortness of breath, because um, the OB would want us to clear them first for like any kind of uh, cardiac disorder or, you know, anything like that. And then subsequently the patient's cramping or, you know, having some contractions or um, they have hypertension in pregnancy. So we don't want to delay that care. Additionally, you know, pieces to the puzzle. involvement so, of OB yeah. that's so critical. From your from your side of it, as Debbie mentioned, you know, she's fortunate to be someplace that has OB there for them to be able to turn to. Um, you know, education is helpful, but certainly recognizing the environment and you know working with whatever partners you have if you don't have OB right there. Um, is that a message that uh, gets shared enough? Do you think as part you know if the education isn't as um, prominent as it could be, is that relationship a need to build those relationships? Is that an issue as well in, from what you've seen yeah. in research? Yeah, well, I think, again, you know, because so much of this is personality driven, right? Like somebody who, who wants to, and this is why I think the idea of champions is, is so challenging, right? Because it's like, if it's person driven, then when that person leaves, like the whole thing falls apart. So what we need really is a policy and process driven um, trajectory of care, right? So people should be able to, in the same way that somebody comes in with a stroke or a heart attack or whatever, pick up the checklist and say, okay, is the patient, do they meet these criteria? If so, call this person, right? Mm -hmm. Notify, you know, get this person on the horn right away. Because I think what happens in you know, typically what shows up in the research around obstetric care, things like estimated blood loss and postpartum hemorrhage is this idea of delay and deny, right? Um, like, oh, it's not so bad. Oh, I think it'll be fine. We're just gonna watch and wait, right? Where in this case, especially if you're in an area that does not have um, perinatal care, right? Um, you've got to get that patient to the, just like a trauma, like you've got to treat this like that we mm -hmm. treat traumas. You identify, you stabilize, you transfer get them to the appropriate caregivers. Completely agree with that. 
really, uh, you know, to kind of wrap up, you know, from your perspective, Debbie, first, um, you know, really what are the best next steps you can see in, in uh, a positive trajectory? I mean, there's a lot of work being done, obviously, as Lisa's reference about the education side of it, but there also feels like there's some, I won't call them common sense, but some real fundamental changes that are real simple to sort of implement. I mean, is it really that easy? Just focus on those fundamentals that you would look at for any patient that comes in the ED and doesn't distinguish them in a different category, but treats them the same and really does focus on asking better or different questions. Um, in our in the hospital I work for, we do have a checklist that Lisa was mentioning about the specific processes for less than 20 weeks, greater than 20 weeks, and the process how to um, bring the OB services in. Additionally, I think um, at the standalone facility, they have a checklist as well on what to do and how to stabilize and um, transport that patient. Because I, uh, one of the biggest uh, problems that I see is turnover of staff and not necessarily because people you know, want to just leave the ER. It's just people transition into different roles. We have a lot of nurses and nurse practitioner schools. So then you lose that um, person that might be your expert that was so passionate about education with obstetrics and then who you're bringing in next. So um, mm -hmm. to take over for you. So sustainability, collaborating with the OB department. If you don't have an OB facility, who do you transport to and collaborating with them on education and maybe doing a module like, like Lisa had designed. I think it would be very beneficial to um, have that every year as part of the competencies. And I'm, I'm not sure this year because I'm leaving that that um, modules going to be assigned to everyone, you know, again. Lisa, just uh, as a final uh, final thought from you, you know, what are some takeaways, uh, you know, for maybe a nurse who maybe hasn't thought about this to the level that we've discussed here, uh, regardless of their experience level, what, what are some takeaways you would want a nurse who is now maybe thinking about this a little bit differently because of this conversation? What would you want them to take away for, you know, improvements or just a, a different mindset moving forward? Right. I think that especially in initial triage, that um, pregnancy or postpartum status with a particular set of presenting concerns, right? So headache, belly pain, uh, chest pain, shortness of breath, those four things in a pregnant or postpartum person make them an ESI too, right? They are high risk presentations. And so if you take the pregnancy piece out of it or the postpartum piece out of it, they could very easily be like, oh, they've just got some bronchitis or, oh, they've, you know, like they're stable, they're safe to wait. The, the presence of uh, pregnancy or postpartum status makes that person high risk and that person should have eyes on them very quickly. Um, and that's really, I think the critical thing, right? You have to ask. People are not going to disclose, especially in this environment. People may not always disclose pregnancy or postpartum status. And, and postpartum status means, did a pregnancy end for you, right? Because people have late stillbirths. They have you know late losses. They have miscarriages. They have abortions. They have all kinds of things, right? And so to frame it in a way that is non-judgmental and identifies the clinical risk, I think is really important to plug that person into the appropriate trajectory of care. Well, obviously there's a lot to this. We could talk about it for a long period of time. Lisa and Debbie, you both have got a wealth of, of background and, and certainly there's a lot of, of ground to be gained to improve this overall. So I appreciate you both being a part of the podcast today. Thanks so much. Thank you.
So that'll do it for uh, this episode of the ENA podcast. Appreciate everyone who has listened. And, and certainly we've uh, been bringing a lot of episodes to you lately and uh, certainly a lot of great things going on both from the ENA side, but also continuing to, to find uh, the right clinical topics to, uh, to highlight. And this was obviously a very important one and an interesting one uh, to share with everyone. So appreciate everybody who's listening and hope you'll join us next time on the ENA podcast. Thank you.